I am privileged here at Covenant not only to get to live life with all of you, uh, but to get to connect with parents and families. I love Parents Weekend. I love orientation and those chances to meet your families because I don't feel like I can fully know you until I know your families. And so it's just a delight uh, to also have that that blessing uh, being here today. We will be hearing from a covenant mother, uh, Matt Guthrie, transferred in this fall. He's a junior here at Covenant, and uh, his mother, Nancy, is going to be speaking to us today. Uh, she has a passion for sharing God's word. She's been involved in international teaching ministries, been in the Christian publishing industry for over 20 years. Um, I've had the privilege of, speaking, of hearing her speak at various events, um, at retreats and at General Assembly in different places. And, and I'm just delighted uh, that you all get to hear from her today. Uh, besides her resume, Nancy just lives an ordinary life, and she is a wife, she's a mother, she's a friend, she's a follower of Jesus. Uh, I got to do her Bible study a few years ago um, called Hoping for Something Better, Refusing to Settle for Life as Usual, and it's a 10-week study through Hebrews. And she has a quote in there in a chapter kind of dealing with rest, um, which is something the Lord has really been convicting me on this past year in just various ways, showing me what does it mean to really have Sabbath rest and true rest in him, even in the midst of a very busy and full schedule. She closes one of her chapters, which says, Jesus leads us away from meaningless ritual toward meaningful rest. And I just pray that even in these 30 minutes that we'll just all take a step back from the ritual of coming to chapel every day, from the ritual of our routine, and that we will just hear what the Father wants to say to us as we seek to enter his rest. Good morning. I feel like I'm every covenant student's worst nightmare today, a parent who won't go home after parents' weekends. Uh, it's been a really fun weekend to be here uh, on the campus over these couple of days. And I've been conducting a little research, especially yesterday after the day on Saturday. I was, I've been asking various students and faculty the same question about Saturday because, you know, you had quite a lot of uh, athletic events on Saturday. And so I would say to different people, so, you know, who won the basketball game? And you know what they said, right? What? We won, right? And who uh, won the baseball game? We won. You know, who won the rugby game? Oh, I should have known. Yeah, okay. I'd hear from them. Yeah, exactly. Over and over again, I hear from people. They say, we won. Now, I find this interesting because some of the people who said, we won, they haven't sweated an ounce for the team, right? Um, they didn't practice for the game or suit up for the game, and yet they say, we won. Some of them were not even on the sidelines or in the stands, and yet they can say with a straight face, we won. Because somewhere along the way, they have merged their own identity their own aspirations, their own destiny with that of the team. Mm -hmm. You know, diehard fans, 
they see the players who march onto the field or onto the court as extensions of themselves. And they are joined to those brave warriors by common colors, if not shared effort, and by their passion for victory instead of defeat. So in the passage that we are going to witness today, you can open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Samuel 16. In this passage, a lone warrior goes out while everyone else stays back on the sidelines. And when it's all over, all of those who have merged their identity and their destiny with the victor could rightly shout and say, we won, even though they were never on the field. In fact, when we look closely at this story, we're going to discover that it is actually about the most significant battle in the universe. This is a conflict in which the entire human race is at stake. So here in 1 Samuel 16, we find the people of Israel. And at this point in the story of the history of Israel, they are a loose confederation of 12 tribes and they have no central government. And frankly, they're just tired of fighting against enemies who have a human king who will ride out before them to lead them into battle. They want a human king for themselves. And so they petitioned God through his prophet Samuel to give them a king like the other nations have. And God has given them the kind of king that they ask for. But that king, King Saul, has failed. And when we come to chapter 16 in 1 Samuel, we find that God is now preparing to give his people a king, it says, after his own heart. Or in other words, the kind of king he wants. The kind of king through whom he wants to reign over his people. So look there in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, when Samuel went to Bethlehem and he saw Jesse and all of his sons, Samuel was sure that he saw Saul's replacement. He saw David's older brother, Eliab, and he was tall and handsome. I mean, this guy looked positively kingly. Look at verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees Not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Skip down to verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains the youngest, but behold, he's he's out keeping the sheep. I mean, evidently, David is so insignificant to the family. He hasn't even been invited home to be included in this once-in-a-lifetime honor of having offering a sacrifice with Israel's great judge Samuel. But that is about to change, verse 12. And he sent him and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. So David comes in. He's handsome, but he's hardly impressive. 
I mean, this is a kid, and he, he knows how to handle sheep, but there's no sign he knows how to handle a nation. He'd proven himself out there in the grazing fields of sheep, but he's unproven on the battlefield. And yet, this is the unlikely king God had chosen. You know, Samuel, looking at those sons of Jesse, could see only their outward appearance, and only David's outward appearance, which evidently did not seem very royal. But God could see into David's heart. And while David might not have had proven battle skills, he does have a passion for God's honor. You see, this is what God was looking for in a king who would reign over his people. I wonder when you read this part of the scriptures and you see that the Lord sees and knows the heart. Do you find that comforting or condemning? Do you find yourself hoping that God will see through the exterior into the true nature of your heart, the true passions of your hearts? Or do you cringe at the notion that he can see what you have hoped to hide? You see, God sees through our reputations into the reality of our inner lives, for good or for bad, and Let's face it, some of us look good on the outside and no one can really see the stubborn disobedience, the steady stream of defeats in our battles against ongoing sin, the stifling darkness that defines the real culture of our inner lives. But God does. And likewise, Other people can't always see the secret sacrifices and the costly surrenders and all of the little deaths to self that define the culture of hearts who have been invaded and ruled by King Jesus. But God does. Everyone in Jesse's house must have been surprised and perhaps even confused by what happened next. Look in verse 13. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. Now, you know this. Throughout the Old Testament, people were consecrated for divine service, such as priesthood or kingship, through an anointing ceremony. And as that oil dripped down the face and beard. It was a visual representation of God pouring out his spirit on the man, empowering him for his holy duties. So to be anointed was to be set aside and equipped by God for God. Verse 13 says, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. You see, all of Israel's history had been pointing toward this day and the anointing of this shepherd king. It is David's kingly throne from which the greater son, his greater son, will one day rule the nations. And David is now the Lord's anointed. Or we could call him the Christ. That's what Christ means, the anointed one. And you know, in David, we can't help but see shadows 
of one of his descendants, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, Christ Jesus being cast back into history. And when we begin to see David in this light, it changes everything about how we may have always understood about what happens next. You know, the people had originally asked for a king because of the constant threat of the Philistines. So it doesn't surprise us to read what we read in chapter 17, the first verse. 1 Samuel 17, 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. Now the Philistines aren't just another enemy. They are a threat to Israel's very existence. And so far, the, king, the current king on the throne, Saul, has had mixed results in his jousts with the uh, Philistines. But this time, there is a new wrinkle in the conflict. Look in verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span Goliath, this Philistine among Philistines, was nine feet tall. Now, I've been thinking, Matt, that, you know, if those two sea mutant ninja turtles had recruited Goliath, that maybe you could have beaten those nasty Nash potatoes, don't you think? Yeah. But I'm also thinking from the picture I get here of Goliath that he is one serious trash talker, and I know you guys wouldn't have wanted that, right? Yeah. But Goliath isn't just tall. He has seemingly superhuman strength. Look at verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he's armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his leg and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went out before him. So here's this picture of this nine-foot-tall guy, and he is covered head-to-toe in the high-tech weaponry of his day, which is bronze. And this bronze armor was heavy. It weighs 125 pounds. And he's carrying a spear with a tip on the spear that by itself weighs 15 pounds. So it's like he had a 15-pound bowling ball on the end of his spear, and it's seemingly nothing for him to carry it around and project this heavy spear throughout the air toward his adversaries. Now you notice what it says he's wearing there. It says he's wearing a coat of mail. I'm reading from the ESV. Do any of you have with you a New American Standard or an NIV? Anybody looking at one of those? Because it uses a different term for this. Somebody see it? Do you see it there? It calls it, instead of a coat of mail, it says... He's wearing a coat of scale armor. Hmm. So this is telling us that his bronze armor was like the scales of a snake. Now picture this. Goliath went out onto the battlefield and he's covered in what looks like snakeskin from head to toe. He is like a nine foot tall serpent. And he has an alternative to the pro proposal to bloody battle between the two armies. Look at verses 8 and 9. Here's what he shouts to all the ranks of the armies of Israel. He says, hey, 
Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, you will be our servants and serve us. I mean, Goliath is undiluted evil. He's coming out day after day for 40 days mocking the people of God. So if the person who goes out for battle on Israel's part loses the battle, Israel will be in bondage to this evil forever, be their slaves. And for 40 days, no one has gone out. This king that the people had chosen that time when they got to choose the kind of king they wanted, Saul, who is the tallest person in the camp, he is hiding in his tent with seemingly no intentions of facing this foe. And so it would seem that all Israel, all of God's people, are destined to become slaves of their enemies, the Philistines. Until hope showed up. Verse 12 begins this way. Now, David. The shepherd boy had been sent from the ba- to the battlefront with food for his brothers. And when he got there, and he heard the threats of Goliath, he could hardly believe it. This goon from Gath was insulting the God of Israel. And no one among the Israelites even seems to care. No one else in the camp seemed a bit offended for God's honor. But David was. And so we read in verse 26 that David asked, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, the Israelite army had seen Goliath as unbeatable. But David simply saw him as uncircumcised, wholly without the presence and power and promises of God. And David understood that to taunt and mock and threaten the people of God was to taunt and threaten and mock God himself. And he simply couldn't understand how anyone could stand for it. And so he went and offered himself to Saul. He said, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, of course, before David could go and fight against Goliath, he had to do battle with the derision of his brother, Eliab, who really simply wanted his little brother to be quiet and go away. And he also had to do battle with the belittling of Saul, who was understandably concerned about this size and experiential differential between Goliath and this shepherd boy. But, you see, David wasn't focused on his avatary's size or experience. He was resting in his own experience of God's deliverance in lesser battles against lions and bears out there when he was tending sheep. But more than that, he's resting in Yahweh's covenant promise 
to save and preserve his people. So look in verse 40 of chapter 17. It's a very simple explanation of what happened. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook. And he put him in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. So David went out to fight Goliath. And the weight of the future of God's people rested on this little shepherd boy. But David was confident, not in himself, but in God's conquering power. And though he was insulted by Goliath as he went out, he wasn't intimidated by him. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day. The Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And so David, with one smooth stone hurled at Goliath, crushed the head of the serpent. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So David, the Lord's anointed, was victorious. And all of those Israelites back behind him didn't have to become the slaves of the Philistines. The victory won single-handedly by the Lord's anointed became the shared victory of God's people. They didn't go out for battle and yet they could claim victory vicariously through that one who represented them out on the field of battle. Now, as, as this reality sets in, and as the greater battle between the Lord's anointed, the offspring of the woman promised in Genesis 3, and the Lord's enemy, the ancient serpent, as that begins to come in focus, can you see that we too are being swept up into this battle? You know, oftentimes when we've heard the story of David and Goliath taught in Sunday school, this is the point in the story when the challenge from the teacher becomes to be like David and have confidence in God like David to have his courage in fighting the giants in our lives, to trust God, to make us victorious over whatever difficulties we face. And in that version, we learned the lesson from David and Goliath is that it is up to you to step up to the plate and have faith like David so that you can have the kind of victory in your life that David had over Goliath. 
But in reality, we're not meant to see ourselves in David's place in this story. Instead, we're supposed to see ourselves back there as the armies of Israel, shaking and afraid, intimidated and tired. And our efforts to find someone to rule on the throne of our lives who will be our champion and protector have completely failed. And it looks like we are going to be slaves forever to our greatest enemy, Satan himself. But we have a champion. It's a boy from Bethlehem. And he didn't look strong or kingly, but more like a shepherd. And he was sent to us by our father, and we rejected him and mocked him and just wanted to silence him. And he refused to arm himself with the kind of armor that everyone knows is needed to get ahead in this world, the kind that impresses and intimidates and overpowers. But he wasn't concerned with preserving his own safety, but only with preserving God's honor. And when he went into battle against the great enemy of God's people, he went alone. And there, not in the Valley of Elah, but on the hill of Calvary, our champion was victorious not through impressive strength, but in crushing weakness. There at the cross, the seed of the serpent bruised the heel of the seed of the woman. But Jesus, our champion, crushed the serpent's head. The writer of Hebrews explains what happened in the death of Jesus this way. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, to deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, if the Goliath of death had defeated Jesus, you and I, would forever be slaves to sin and death. But our champion defeated death by his resurrection, and his victory over death has become our victory over death, so that we are the ones who can now do the mocking. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we face an enemy. In fact, an army of enemies who are as real and as powerful and as terrifying as Goliath. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against 
the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy is not covered with bronze or hurling heavy spears at us. He's armed with darkness and deception, and he hurls condemnation at us. And he lies to us. And he inflicts us with pleasures that only bring pain. And he threatens to enslave us to destructive addictions and defeating pa patterns and incapacitating fears. And the truth is we would turn and run. Certain that we are doomed. Certain that we're going to be slaves forever to binging and purging. Slaves forever to pornographic lust. Slaves forever to selfish ambition. Slaves forever to self-righteous snobbery. Slaves forever to materialism and greed. Accept that. We have a champion. And just when we are tempted to give in to despair, we hear the voice of the greater son of David saying, let no man's heart fail. Your servant will go and fight. Jesus has defeated the enemy that threatened us with lifelong slavery to death. And if God is for us in Christ, who can be against us? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. And it's not because we are strong and not because we can win the battle if we just have more faith like David. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Our victory and security comes from being united by faith to our champion. This victory becomes a tangible reality in our lives as we abide in Christ, feed on Christ, draw our life from Christ alone. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim we tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. The son of David, the Christ, has won the battle. 
and he is even now seated on the throne of David, and his kingdom is forever. <laughs> My friends, here is the good news of the gospel. We won. <laughs> we won because our shepherd, warrior king, the great son of David, has gone out before us and has crushed the head of the serpent so that you and I can rightly say we won and know that we are going to share in his victory forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this beautiful Old Testament picture that's not just a kiddie Bible story. <laughs> it's a picture for us of the reality, the greatest reality of the universe, the greatest battle in the universe, the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And Lord, as we look at this, we are so grateful to know that because we have reached out and been united to you by faith, that even though we were back there shaking and afraid, though we never even stepped on the field, that you, our glorious, victorious champion, have gone out before us and you have won the victory for us. So that all we need do is be joined to you by faith. And so that we come to you and we say, thank you and bless you for going out alone and winning the battle and crushing weakness for us, knowing that the day is coming when we will see you in glorious strength. And our eyes, we will set our eyes on you on the throne of David, and there you will sit, our glorious champion. In your name we pray, amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>